The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Pray with me. Almighty God, we gathered here today ascribe to You all glory and all honor and all praise and all strength, all majesty, all splendor. That is who you are, that is what you deserve. You alone are worthy of it. So we declare it to be the case. This is you. That's who you are. We ascribe it to your name. And we do so Many of us, I trust, do so gladly in great happiness. Thank God that you are God. And you tell us to worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. You are holy, but you want us to worship you in holy attire. Ourselves in Splendid holiness as a holy people set aside to be yours, cleansed. Ultimately, you have done that yourself for us. Bless your name. And then you give us instruction as to how to walk in holiness, how to abide in holiness with you. We want to be a people like that. We want our lips to to be consistent with our lives. When we ascribe to you holiness and greatness and majesty, we want to live in the light of that, embracing it. And so we pray, Lord, as you open up the text today and tell us and teach us and inform us some of what that holiness looks like, will you also give grace to us to help make it so? We are your people, but we are a fallen people. Most of us here, thankfully, redeemed. The penalty of sin has been removed from us and and placed on Christ's cross. Thank you. But you have not yet removed the presence of sin from this world and from our own hearts. And as you will tell us today, some of what needs to change. We ask You do more than just tell us. Give us help to be different. To be holy people before You as You are holy. You have one passage before us this morning, Lord, with with a central point to it. And I pray, make it clear. Would You commission God the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, would you commission him to run through this room to lift up my human words and make them more than just human words, to make them life. The rest of this psalm talks about how your powerful voice changes the world. Would you supernaturally work your powerful voice out of this text through my frail, fallen human voice to effect change in this world? That happens by the power of your Spirit. And so I pray, send Him into our midst. Life to your Word this morning. Open our hearts here this morning. Produce change in us here this morning that abides this afternoon, tomorrow, the rest of the week. Changes life, in fact. Will you do that, please, for us? That Christ would be glorified. That your church would be built. That the bride would be cleansed. 
Would you do that by the power of your spirit here in this place, the glory of Christ and for the good of your church? That's what I pray. Amen. Once some time ago, a man sat in a crowd uneasy as he listened to a particular traveling teacher. He wasn't quite sure that he liked the the gist of what this guy was getting at, the, the general approach of this teacher. So he asked him a question, really to test him. He asked him the question to test him. So, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do you say? And the teacher turned it back back on him. What does God's word say? Well, the man knew that. And so he confidently answered in the words of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, touching on the two halves of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the teacher commanded him, that's right. Do this and you will live. But that wasn't quite enough for the man. So he asked another question, intending to justify himself, that is, to prove himself right. And he said, okay, well, who's my neighbor? And the teacher then told him a story about a traveler robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And how several pious Jews came upon him, men like this questioner, who would affirm all day long their their total and complete love for the Lord their God and their love for their neighbor. They came upon him, this downcast victim, and they averted their eyes and crossed to the other side of the street and passed by this fallen down man. Two men did that. But another man didn't, and he saw this injured fallen man, and he stopped. And he rescued him at personal cost in time and money. And he got involved. Which of the three was a neighbor to that man? The teacher asked. The one who showed him mercy, of course. And Jesus then said, you go and do likewise. Love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength, all that you are. Love God completely and totally and love your neighbor as yourself. These two are one. Do not separate them. That's what we're going to be considering today in Deuteronomy chapter 22. We've been working through the book of Deuteronomy. We've come to this section here in this long speech, and that's really what it is, one great big long speech. Moses is giving to the people of God as they are preparing to cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land and and set up this country of Israel. We've come to this section that's just loaded with a host of civil laws. Statutes, rules for this nation of Israel that's about to form. They're going to acquire a place. They're going to set up a government. For several weeks we've been working through this section that has a whole bunch of civil law that is a reflection of the moral law of God. If you think... Moral law, think Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, a revelation of God's character, and then the civil law comes out of them in all kinds of details of life in this nation of Israel. We've been working through this, and our constant task has been to see, here are some specifics for this nation. Given that we are not a nation of the people of God, what's in this that is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training us in righteousness? What's here? Where do we see the moral law in it? And what does that mean for our lives today? We've been working on that point through the past several chapters, and we're going to be doing it again today in chapter 22, as the first verses connect with the previous theme that we've been working on, life. Life in the land. And God's call to His people to protect, nourish, enhance, cherish, provide for life in other people. To love their neighbors, says themselves. So that's what we're going to be addressing this morning as I focus on the first 12 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 22. And I'll mostly, even within those 12 verses, be leaning more heavily on the first 8 verses. I'm going to read all 12, and I'm going to pass back through the passage to make sure that we understand it, because there are some things that will be confusing there, and then make a couple of overarching observations. So Deuteronomy 
chapter 22, verses 1 through 12. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same with his donkey, or with his garment, or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. A man shall not wear, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. You shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. Deuteronomy 12, 1 through 12. These 12 verses are marked off as, as a section all in, in their own because they are direct commands to us. The verses before and the verses in 13 and following are this case law that we looked at before, where, where the structure of the, the verses are, if it so happens that, when the situation arises that, when you find this, when, if, particular cases before and after here in verses 1 to 12 the 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 drumbeat of these verses are direct commands almost all of them are direct statements to people rather than to courts about what to do in particular cases this is set apart here we are on a on a on a seam part of this section connects to the previous material the previous cases and part of this section connects to the upcoming cases we're in a transition point here and we begin with the biggest section, verses 1 to 4, that reach back to the previous topic. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep. Verse 4 talks about his donkey. In effect, verse 3 says, or his garment, or, or frankly, anything. So he's named a, a couple of particular animals here, but he's, he's also making clear that this is much broader than just these particular animals. So don't, don't think that we are to read this. The text itself indicates we are not to read this very literally as only applying to those animals. It's broad. There's something much bigger going on here. If he loses, frankly, anything, what do you do with it? You grab it and you take it back to him. Or if you don't know who it is, or if he lives far away, you take it home and keep it for safekeeping until you figure it out who it belongs to, and then you restore it to him. End of verse 2. Verse 3, you do this for anything you just happen to find, which he's lost. You may not ignore it. In fact, turn it up a notch, verse 4, beyond just a situation where you might find something that's been lost, verse 4 is a crisis situation where you come upon a problem. Picture here is a, a beast of burden, a, a donkey or an ox loaded down, maybe even a brother himself, we might say, who's loaded down and has fallen down by the side of the road and you are not to pass by and just leave it there, but to get engaged and help to lift it up again. To help. Three times in these four verses... Here's the, here's the point here. Three times in these four verses, both in the passive coming across something and in the, the finding of a crisis situation, three times you may not ignore him. 
Literally, you may not hide yourself. You may not hide your eyes. You may not blind yourself to. I see something, an item that's been lost. I see a problem. And God expressly, repeatedly forbids His people from saying, that's none of my concern. I don't see anything over there that I need to get involved in. Yes, you do. You shall not ignore it. Your brother's things, your brother's livelihood, his life is your concern. Which is the thought that carries us into verse 5. And as I say that, and some of you look down and read verse 5, there will probably be some head scratching. Because how, how does verse 5, touching on this issue of, of transvestitism, cross-dressing, how does verse 5 relate to any of this? What, what's it doing there? Well, let's work on it a little bit. It, this is not a prohibition against women wearing men's clothing. Think about this carefully. It's a prohibition against women presenting themselves as men. There's a difference. Or vice versa, men presenting themselves as women. So this is not, don't, don't read this and think men, women cannot wear long pants. They have to wear dresses. People have thought that from verses like this and taught it. It's not, what's, not what it's about. You can think about that just by, by working on culture a little bit. Is it okay for men to wear kilts? Look a lot like skirts, but very manly in certain parts of the world, in certain cultures. <laughs> More manly than I am. <laughs> there are plenty of women who are clearly women, who are clearly feminine, clearly presenting themselves as women, wearing jeans, baseball caps, and hockey jerseys. And there are plenty of women who are presenting themselves as men in wearing jeans and baseball caps and hockey jerseys. The issue is presenting yourself. What are you presenting yourself as? A man as a woman or a woman as a man. To present oneself as the opposite gender is a conscious rejection of God's creation order who made them male and female and a deliberate conscious attempt to be the other is a rejection of that and so god says this is an abomination which gets us to the concern for the life of others from the first four verses the word abomination is a frequent one in this book it's it's used often throughout the book of deuteronomy and it it always indicates god's extreme displeasure in his impending judgment in fact, one of the reasons that he explicitly cites for wiping out the inhabitants of the land is that they are and are engaged in countless abominations. Often tied to worship rituals, but other things as well. And so he is passing judgment on them and limiting them and very frequently warning his people Israel, don't you go there. Because if you guys go there and embrace those abominations, I will do the same to you as a people. I will kick you as a whole people out of the land, which, which is what eventually happened. He's dealing with the people as a whole when a culture, and certainly not every single individual embraces the particular abomination, but when a culture embraces it, the culture runs under God's wrath. So the command spoken here is not, not a court case about what does the court do with such a situation. It's spoken to an individual. Don't you, your, don't, do you, don't you yourself embrace this abomination and thereby endanger the whole community. Thereby bring the whole community into a place where God's judgment may fall. Which should tell us a couple of things here. First, we should note God's community-wide approach. Very often through this book, He wants a holy community. He wants people to be holy because He wants a holy community. He has a view of the whole, as well as individuals, but the whole. See that hinted at here. But another thing that we should observe, clearly this type of behavior is connected to homosexuality. And clearly, God calls it an abomination. 
And clearly, that is not the main point in this passage. Christians need to hear this. Oftentimes, anytime we get anywhere near homosexuality, it becomes the issue that we are about. It's not even the main point in these 12 verses. Let alone the whole book of Deuteronomy. There are much bigger fish to fry. Is it an abomination? Is it sin? Yes. Is it the whole problem? Not by a long shot. It's serving here only as an illustration of the bigger problem. It's a brief illustration of the tendency to live however you feel like. Ignoring the life and ignoring the welfare of others. That's the issue. So, so Christians, take care with this. Don't zoom in in this passage or in life in general and think this is the one we really got to get after. It's not even a thing we got to get after in this passage. Get some perspective on this. The main thing is living however you feel like and ignoring, you shall not ignore, ignoring the welfare and life of others. Which carries on then into the following verses. The bird's nest and, and the mother and the young there. What is that about? Well, if you take the mother, the young will die. If you take them all, you run the risk of creating what we might today call an ecological or a conservation problem. So you leave the mother and take the young. So that, end of the verse, end of verse 7, that it will go well with you, that you may live long. He's still on the same theme of life, of providing for and protecting life. And here's how you do it in a, in a small example of, of ecology. Leave the mother, protect the species, take the young. And obviously, verse 8 is a pretty clear one. Build a, a wall on your roof so that people don't fall off and die. In that culture, roofs were places where entertainment happened, where work happened, in good weather where sleeping happened. And so obviously, if you just got a flat surface somewhat off the ground, people could roll off or walk off or fall off incidentally. So you, though it will cost you time and money, you build a wall around the edges of your roof to protect other people. Even if you don't want to, you're required to for their sake. Verses 9 through 12 then begin a transition to the next section, I think, with a couple of generic statements that forbid mixing. But these are difficult to understand, and nobody's really sure what's going on here. They're so brief, so, so concise, there's not a, not a lot of elaboration on them. But it forbids mixing in three things. Mixing of seeds you sow, animals with which you plow, and fabrics with which you make garments polished off by a positive command to put tassels on the edge of your robes. <laughs> a little laughing. What is that about? Well, the, the, law, the rest of the law will explain. Tassels are about reminding you of the law. Tassels were on robes as visual, tactile reminders of the commandments of God. And I think what's being said here, and, and they are... Uh, this isn't completely clear, so I think what's being said here is we are to be followers of the law of God which is pure and to live lives that reflect that as we don't mix. Don't mix two animals, one of which is, if you were to look through it, one of which is a clean animal, one of which is an unclean animal. Don't mix two types of fabrics, one that comes from an animal, one that comes from a plant. Don't mix two types of seeds that uh, germinate and grow and are harvested differently. seems that what he's getting at is mixing versus the idea of purity. The commands of the law are, are pure and holy. Mixing in life is forbidden. It could also be that there's a bit of an allusion to the next section, which is if you look ahead, which is all about sexuality, because sowing and plowing are terms that are often euphemistically applied to sexual, the sexual area of life. So... That's not completely clear. 
They do belong together, though. They are, they are paired in the same place in Leviticus 19, verse 19. So there's something there, but I just can't say very clearly what it is. It seems to be it's about purity. I'm going to be focusing on the first eight verses of the, of the passage that I think are pretty clear. That's where I'm going to be giving our attention here in, in a couple of observations. Let me make a couple of observations and then tie them together into one point at the end. So, looking at verses 1 through 8, here's my first main observation. The people of God are to lay down their lives for others in love. The people of God, His covenant community, those who belong to Him, we are to lay down our lives to live mindful of and sacrificing for the sake of others in love for them. There are two things there. There's the the thing with the hands, the the, the living out, the, the laying down of life, and there's the thing that's inside, the heart, love. And they are connected. You, you can't ever separate them. There's the, the outside that comes from the inside. The laying down and the love. Both of those things work together. We are to love and lay down our lives for others. But who are the others? The text frequently uses the word brother in verses 1 to 4. It's in there a lot. Indicating the usual perspective of Deuteronomy. We're talking about the people of God. It's talking to the people of God about how to deal with the people of God. Explicitly, then, the others are the brothers within the covenant community. And we need to keep that in mind. This is talking about the church. Those who are in union with God. We need to keep this in mind because there is a very particular, very unique, very focused way that God has loved His own and has sent His Son to lay down His life for them. The people of God, if you're a Christian, you, the people of God are His precious, special, beloved possession, unique, the object of His Son's sacrifice. We need to keep that in mind. There is something very special here. But when we keep that in mind, we cannot stop there. Even in the text, verse 8 itself kind of broadens our perspective just a little bit as it doesn't want anyone to fall off the roof. You can picture this. You have a bunch of people over. You don't want only the Jewish people to not fall off the roof. You don't want anybody to fall off the roof. So it broadens it just a little bit in the text itself. More explicitly, Leviticus 19. And the context in Leviticus 19 closely resembles our context here. Leviticus 19.19 is the verse that contains the stuff about mixing that I alluded to just a minute ago. Leviticus 19.18, right before it, is what that man quoted to Jesus just before the story of the Good Samaritan. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, verse 18. There's the focus on the people of God. If you read through 19, verse 18, it's clear. He's talking about the people of God. And Jesus hears that and affirms that just before He tells a story about Samaritans. How does He connect those two things? Because Jesus also knows Leviticus 19, verse 34. Same chapter. And in 19, verse 34, it says, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns among you as a native. You shall love him as yourself. Same chapter in the Bible. You shall love your brother as yourself. You shall love the stranger as yourself. You shall love people as yourself. Everybody who's here. Not just us, them too. Those who are here, you are to treat them as a native, and just like you love this other one, love him. As Jesus put it elsewhere, 
You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like God, your father. Catch that so that you may be like God, love your enemies. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? If you greet only your brothers, don't the Gentiles do that? Jesus continues. Isn't that how everybody lives? Isn't that how everybody lives? Doesn't everybody love people who love them? Doesn't everybody love people who they're tight with? It's almost kind of like the definition of people you're tight with, those you love. Everybody's like that. Big deal if we are. Love your enemies as well. And pray for those who persecute you. Who do you love as yourself and lay down your life for? People. Uniquely and specially. We we cannot lose that. Uniquely and specially. We are to do good to all people. Uniquely and specially those of the household of faith. But all people. Love them as yourself. Lay down your life for them. Think for a second about what that requires. If you just look at this passage here, which which again, remember, these examples are just particular, a couple of particular examples of how you might play this out if you lived in this ancient land of Israel. But just think about those. Verse 1, you're going to have to take that animal and walk it back over to your neighbor's house. It's going to cost you a little bit of time. I don't know, maybe an hour. Unless you don't know who owns this animal. Then you're going to have to keep it. And find a place for it. And feed it. And maybe groom it. And depending on how long you have it, you might have to lead it out and lead it back. I mean, maybe you've got to deal with various things related to animals, all for somebody else. A little bit of an inconvenience, maybe some financial obligation. And the crisis in verse 4, that's way inconvenient. Verse 4, you think about this, I'm on a trip. I have a place to be. I'm all dressed up and I'm a little bit late. The last thing I want to do is start trying to wrestle with some loaded down ox who's stuck in the mud. Or get involved with this beaten and bloody guy here. I don't know what what his situation is. It's none of my business. I don't know this guy. I don't know that animal. I don't know whose cloak this is. It's none of my business. You shall not ignore it. You shall not ignore them. You shall not ignore him. Three times. It is your business. It is our business. It's pretty easy to see why it would be tempting to ignore such situations. They're complex. They're at least a little bit inconvenient. And maybe, who knows, this thing may open up and become a huge problem. It's best just to leave that alone. No, you can't. We cannot turn a blind eye towards any situation that involves the life or livelihood, the well-being, the prospering of other people. He calls us to lay down our lives for them. And that's what should sting us here. That's what should sting us here. I don't, I don't know all of you by any stretch. I don't, I don't know all the details of your life. But the degree to which we in general live for self, willfully ignoring, or, or maybe just blithely overlooking need because we don't even notice other people, the degree to which we live for self should alarm us if we had any idea the depth of it. So often we don't even notice the needs that other people have. 
We don't even notice the threats to them, the troubles that they face. Beyond that, though, when we do, frequently we want nothing to do with them. Especially other people. You know, those people who are a little difficult for you. You have people that are difficult for you. I have people who are difficult for me. They are people we are especially prone to ignore. They're complicated. They're troubling. But God expects that His people would be marked by a sacrificing, giving lifestyle that sees them, us, laying themselves down to protect, nourish, enhance the life and well-being of other people. Why? Because that's what He is like. He has made people in His image. And He values people. And He wants His people to value what He values. He is a generous and giving and gracious God who is concerned for people, even His enemies. Did not Jesus show this? Jesus comes to earth knowing who His sheep are. Read John 10. He knows who His sheep are and He knows who they aren't. And He has a conversation with people. He knows who He has come to save. But is He not frequently moved with bowels of compassion to heal multitudes of people? To reach out and meet the needs of their lives. Is He not like that? Always He is like that. There isn't an ounce of Jesus that I cannot be troubled with this. It's what God is like, and He wants His people to be like that in a multitude of ways. Not in every conceivable way, because sometimes you can conceive of ways that might look like help that would actually hurt. We know that. I'm sure some of us are thinking of this. I I could give money to that, but that would be enhancing the problem. Well, they don't do that. The whole key here is the repeated phrase, you shall not ignore it. You shall look at it and think it through what actually is needed. And how can I help meet that? That's the expectation. Think about that for a second. I mean, it, it should, it should pierce you a little bit. It, it should make you uncomfortable. But think about it a little differently. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? I want to be a part of a community like that. And I think that you do too. I have experienced that just one particular time and place. I experienced a community like that and it was sweet where there wasn't any uh, distancing or separation or avoiding cliques developing, we don't talk to them. It was something very unique and, and special and sweet. I loved it. And it's been ten years since I've known that. I want to be a part of a community like that. I think everyone does because God made us that way. He made us as relational people. He made us so that something in Ecclesiastes 4 resonates with us. Blessed is the man who has a, a brother. This is, this is not a marriage text. We use it in marriages often, but it's about people. Blessed is the man who has a brother who stands by his side because when one of them falls down, the other one will lift him up. These two men together can keep each other warm at night. That's not a marriage bed. That's men out on a, on a trek in the mountains at night when it's cold and you have to sleep right next to each other to stay warm. You enable each other to live. Two, meeting each other's needs. Or they'll be able to fight off an enemy together. Two, meeting each other's needs. Something in that resonates with us. We, we want that. But what the fall has done, what sin has done, is it has twisted us so that though something remains in us that we want, we want connection to people who can be there for us and for whom we can be there, 
We want that, but we've been twisted into massive self-defense people. Getting close to someone like that is going to involve some vulnerability, and I don't know if I want to risk that. Getting involved in your life is going to involve some mess, I think, and I don't know if I want to be bothered by that. It might impinge on my life in some way. That's the fall twisting us, turning us inward to be self-focused rather than focused on other. I think we are weak in this. Not every one of us. I, I mean, I know some of you, and I know you do well at this. But I think we as a church are weak in this. Our community outside of this place in many places is very shallow. In many places, many angles of our church community, we are willing to help only as far as up until the point that we begin to feel a little bit of uncomfort, of discomfort, or it's going to cost us a little bit. And then we're busy. This has to change in us. We, and I think that something in you wants it to change. I know something in the world wants it to change. People want to live in community like that. We don't stand any chance of being like that with other people out there if we're not that way with each other in here, though. We've got to start with this. So this is a great thing for your gospel community group to talk about this afternoon. Take your temperature as a group. Do it for yourself first, personally, and then take your temperature as a group. Where are we on this? To what degree, look at yourself and ask, to what degree is sacrificial living for the sake of other people a characteristic of my life? Do I even know what the other people need? Do you? Ask yourself that. Talk about it in your group. What's our group like? What what do we have going on here? It has to change. Where it isn't, where that isn't you, where that's not what you're like, realize something that's important. The solution to this is not just shape up. It's not just be different. Be more sacrificing. Ask more questions. Pay more attention. Give of yourself more. That's not the answer because that's not the problem. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the hands act. And if you find your hands reluctant to give stuff away, reluctant to lay things down for the people, you should not look just at your hands. You should look at your heart and say, what's the problem going on in here? Your problem actually is a heart issue of lovelessness. The problem is deeper than just a change of behavior. The whole thing starts with love your neighbor as yourself. And for many of us, I think for all of us, if we're honest, the verdict is, I don't love my neighbor as myself. It's pretty clear. What do we have to do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These two things are one. And we don't do them. Either of them. Which should make this, if you're tracking with this, should make it a huge problem. Should make it a huge problem. Because that guy asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There it is. Oops. I don't do that. He thought he did. He thought to justify himself. And Jesus exposed him. May he graciously expose you. 
And may he send you running to the end of the law, Christ, who is the only one who ever lived this. Who came to earth and kept the law and went to the cross crucified for lawbreakers like me and you. We see this and it should bring a sense of guilt on us and then it should send us running to Christ and a sense of relief that He has removed the guilt that rests on me. He has taken it. I'm forgiven. If you're a Christian, you've trusted Christ's cross, you are forgiven. But then, what next? Because the requirement of the law, God's still the same. God still wants His people to be like Him. To love other people from the heart and lay down their lives for them. How do we get there? That's the second observation, which I'm going to have to be really quick with. Okay, let me give you the second observation and then, and then cut right to the chase. Um, <laughs> sorry. The, the second observation, that so write this down and then we're going to go... Uh, look at how how I understand this. Uh, mortify the love of self and enliven the love of others. Mortify, put to death, kill the love of self and enliven the love of others. So I'm talking about heart work here. By living on the gospel. Not just by understanding the gospel, but by living on the gospel. And to cut right to the chase, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians in the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 1, written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Colossae. And in Galatians 1, Paul's telling these Christians how he's praying for them. Watch what he says, verse 4 of Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. In other words, to connect the dots, I hear how Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 8 is alive in your life. There is love there that's leading to a laying down of life. I hear of your love for all the saints. And it's visible. That's how other people can see it and can tell me about it. Something inside has become out, and I hear of that. How did that happen? Because, following along in the verse, love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Literally, that's what it says. Because. If you have the NIV, they added in some words. To make it a little more clear, which springs from the hope. Literally, it's because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. They have a hope that is stored up for them in heaven that is causing love for the saints. But it's not just love, it's not just a hope that, that exists out there, it's a hope that they know of. Think, think of any inheritance that you might have. If you have an inheritance that's somewhere kept for you somewhere else that you don't know about, it's not affecting your life. You've got to know about it and be conscious of it for it to matter. So they don't just have a hope, they are, as Pastor Kurt said sometime back when he preached this passage, they don't just have a hope, they are hoping in that hope. So, brothers and sisters, think about this for just a second. Think about the hope that you have. You have an amazing, fabulous hope laid up for you in heaven. An inheritance kept there that will never perish, spoil, fade, die, end, dry up, or blow away. Never. It will never cease. It is vast, wide, long, high, and deep. It is a...
full communion with the God who made you. Who made you for Himself and has Himself acted to join you back to Him. And has Himself promised and will one day fulfill a cleansing of the earth from all sin. And will plant you in that new heaven and new earth where all sin and all fallenness and all brokenness has ceased. And every tear will be dried and you will have age upon age upon age to behold the wonder of His glorious grace poured out on you. To bask in His never-ending love for you. To see His wisdom and His creativity and the beauty of His being. You will see that forever. Do you care? Or... This afternoon at 3 o'clock or so, a whole bunch of problems are going to rush into your life. Maybe at 12.01. Not 12.01, probably. <laughs> uh, maybe 12.20. Um, a whole bunch of problems are going to rush in on you. Do you care more about them? This is, this is the battle. This is the battle. I say the same thing every week. Don't I? I mean, if you're listening, it's the same thing every week. Because the Bible says the same thing everywhere. This is the battle. You have an inheritance one for you. And you will one day come to experience. First Peter 1 talks about this. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. And the moment that you actually believe that these light and momentary troubles here are achieving for you that eternal glory that far outweighs them all, the moment you believe that and live by it, you will be a changed person and this down here will change. I'm not talking about giving intellectual assent to that. Most people here do give intellectual assent to that. I'm talking about believe it and live by it. Use it as the tool that you fight with, with which you fight against unbelief and sorrow and downtroddenness. And I say the gospel because if you keep working through Colossians 1, hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Certainly they heard it once for the first time, but it's still there to be heard. So you work it back. The gospel reminds me of the hope won for me and produces in me a loving nature that then gets lived out so that other people see it and experience it. So, an example. How this works might be captured in, in this example. You're in a gospel community group, and there's there's a a couple there that, as you've been going to these meetings for um, every other Sunday for a while, and of course seeing each other in many other different places outside of those meetings. You know the. The, the women get together, those who are moms with young kids get together for play dates, and maybe some other women go hiking, and some of the guys play basketball, and, and then you get together for an Oscar night party because some people are into movies, and, and you get together in all kinds of other places, and as you're doing that, you, you see this couple. And the first time you see them, you kind of say, oh, okay. And the second time, hmm. And the third time, Oh, I don't want to bother with that. That's a problem. I'm going to sit over here on this side of the room. You do that. I do that. We, we do that. Or, you say, with the gospel running through your mind and controlling what you think about and, and what you love 
you hoping in that hope, you are not hoping in this hope right here. And so if this costs you something like some time, or if you get engaged with this and say, hey, politely, humbly, what's going on in your marriage? And they snap back at you, none of your business. Okay, that's what we're kind of afraid of, one of the things we're afraid of. Well, if your mindset on the gospel, you can handle being snubbed and, and insulted. You have, already have everything you need. You don't need that person's approval. And you were doing it with fine motive and, and in love for them. Or, maybe worse, they say, blah, here's what it is. And you say, oh no. <laughs> I was hoping there was no problem. <laughs> That's the other thing we're worried about. That there actually is a problem. And what am I going to say? And how am I going to handle this? And now I'm in a conversation. I was watching the Oscars. <laughs> If, you're, if the gospel's running through your mind, you're going to see eternity, and the Oscars are pointless. They're pointless, probably, if you don't see eternity. But, but, and I, I, li- I like good movies. But, but you're going to see something differently. And, and the fact that this person has now sucked you into their world is going to look like this person has provided me with an opportunity to love them in Jesus' name and bring the gospel that I'm living on to them. And perhaps something might happen here for the glory of His kingdom and for the good of these two and for the good of their kids and for the good of this group and for the good of the church and for the good of Christ's name. What an opportunity. Or you can... Ignore it and sit on the other side of the room and keep watching. If the gospel's in your mind, if it's what you're hoping and it renews you and transforms you on the inside into Christ-likeness, and then you love people like He does and lay down your life for them. So as we move towards communion, let me encourage you, let me challenge you, let me plead with you. Live on the gospel, love people, and lay your life down for them. Spend a time, a time right now in, in private prayer. Just work that through your mind and ask God, what, what do I need to be? What do I need to change? What needs to happen? Help me, change me. Take a few minutes and I'll close this in prayer when we move towards communion. In goodness, we want to declare that with our lives as well. And I pray, God, give us help to drive out of us our tendency to love self and ignore others, to grow in us the the very nature, the very character of Christ, Christ Christ-likeness. We would be people who love like Him and, and live like Him. We thank You for His incarnation. As we look at these elements here, Lord, we thank You for the fact that He became a human body, broken to nourish us. That He went to the cross and shed His blood without which there is no remission of sin. We bless Your name for that. And we also thank You that He provided for us God the Spirit to indwell us and make us different. Thank You for Your work to make us Your people. Meet with us now, Lord, in different ways, each one of us. We celebrate communion here. Meet with us, I pray. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. 
Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.